how should we as a church draw people from the outside in? How? What should our outreach, even as Hinson Church, what should it look like? Should we do a mailing campaign, canvas the neighborhood with glossy flyers telling them all about the great things about our church? Should we go out and pass out tracts, maybe in the neighborhood or in popular tourist areas? Should we commission some billboards around the city? Should we use social media? I mean, I could keep going. Seriously, I would love to hear your thoughts. What are, after the service, what are some of your ideas or philosophies regarding outreach? You know, I'd I love to hear from the, the longtime Hinson Church members or just those who have been part of churches over the years, the different things that they have seen, the different methods and techniques that maybe your church or this church used, uh, the different programs and philosophies that also, all too often they, they come and go and, the, and the, next, the next method is pursued. I'd particularly love to hear from those of you who would consider yourself unchurched. Like, what drew you here today? Or what would draw you in to a church? I, I would love to hear that from you. Kids, you can talk to me after the service. How do you think, kids, we should draw people into this church? Would it help if I uh, threw out candy when I would come up here? Or maybe have some sick, like, intro music? when the preacher came up to preach, would that, would that help draw people in? Well, today, I'm still waiting for that intro music too, Ron. Today, we're going to catch a glimpse of Jesus's outreach methods. But Christ's outreach methods kind of feel like they should come with a disclaimer, a warning, don't try this at home. Because we're going to hear Jesus today call the religious leaders hypocrites, like get all up in their face. It's going to seem like he suggests that a Gentile woman is a dog. He's going to literally, Jesus is going to literally put his fingers in the ears of a deaf man, and he's repeatedly going to call his disciples dull or slow to understand. So uh, maybe, maybe those aren't the methods that we should pursue today. But despite these rather odd methods to us today, uh, Jesus was wildly popular in his day. Uh, listen to the summary of what's going on in Jesus' ministry at the end of Mark 6, uh, picking up where we left off last week. This is kind of a summary of what's been going on in Jesus' ministry, Mark 6, 54. As they got out of the boat, that's Jesus and the disciples. Remember, that's where we left off last week. They were, Jesus had been walking on the water. And uh, they get out of the boat. They hurried throughout that region and began to carry the sick on mats to wherever they heard he, that is Jesus, was. Wherever Jesus went, into villages, towns, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch just the end of his robe. And everyone who touched it was healed. People were swarming to see Jesus. He was going viral, and people were amazed in his presence. But there were a lot of people who were also confused. In fact, the confusion seems to be getting worse. Well, friends, we're in sermon number five of nine in this summer series in the Gospel of Mark entitled Amazed and Confused in the presence of Jesus. And today, we're going to witness a range of different reactions to Jesus and his ministry. And we're going to witness ways that Jesus interacts with different audiences. And you might think to yourself, man, Jesus could have used a good PR manager because he seems to be offending all the wrong people who could really help push his ministry forward. But regardless of what you think of Jesus' methods and how he interacted with people 
according to our modern sensibilities. Um, in some ways, Jesus had an outreach method that is very familiar to some of us, some of us who have been around at Henson uh, for a couple decades. Some of you, I haven't been here for a couple decades. Jesus turns the inside out to draw the outside in. You guys remember that? Those of you who have been at Henson for a while, Jesus turns the inside out to draw the outside in. Just This was Henson's slogan or motto uh, just 20 years ago, complete with t-shirts. I'll pay for one of those t-shirts, by the way, if they're still anywhere. Uh, there are different programs, a promo video. Jesus turns the inside out to draw the outside in, or rather that was Henson's motto. So we're going to consider today Jesus's unexpected inside out, outside in outreach program today in three points. And my prayer for us is that we will see that God alone can soften hearts and draw people in, that Jesus alone can soften and heal the hard hearts that we all too often have. So Jesus turns the inside out to draw the outside in. Point number one, inside turned out. Inside turned out. We're going to spend most of our time here. Um, and I will just give you a, a heads up. Just like last week, we're covering a lot of ground. So some, some stories, some passages will kind of go in a little deeper. Others, I'm just going to summarize real quick. And you should talk about those passages over lunch because we won't have much time to go very deep on all the material that we're uh, looking at today. Um, so I'd invite you to turn, though, to, so you can follow along to Mark chapter 7. Uh, you can find it on page 893 of these Black Pew Bibles that are in the pews and chairs in front of you, page 893, Mark chapter 7. As I said, we're going to be covering a lot of ground. And as I read this first and longest passage that we'll read today, I want you to think to yourself. So here's the question you should be thinking as I read. What's the difference between the religious leaders, uh, what the religious leaders are concerned about and what Jesus is concerned about? So how are the religious leaders' concern and Jesus' concern different? Let's look at Mark 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, that is Jesus. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs that they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands." Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corbin, that is an offering devoted to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing can go, nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. Verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. 
Well, Jerusalem, the place of opposition against Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, is coming against Jesus again. You can cue the Imperial March music from Star Wars. Imagine stormtroopers marching toward Jesus and his disciples, guns pointed at them. But here we see that Jesus is proving himself to be much more than a Jedi master. You would think that the capital of Jerusalem would be really keen to hear what this guy's been doing, uh, to witness the reports they've heard of this amazing healer, exorcist, resurrector, the Lord of the wind and the waves. But instead, they want to confront Jesus for a much more serious matter in their minds. For Jesus' disciples are not washing their hands properly. You know, the Pharisees' concern has actually nothing to do with personal hygiene or the spread of COVID-19. You heard in chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, how this hand-washing was a ritual, was a ceremonial activity according to the tradition of the elders. You see how many times, according to the tradition of the elders, it's repeated. So Jerusalem has come to judge Jesus for not keeping her religious customs. How does Jesus respond to Jerusalem's judgment of he and his disciples? I'll read it again, verses 6 and 7. He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. So Jesus is willing to play ball on the Pharisees' home turf. You know, he goes to the Old Testament. This is like the Pharisees' area of expertise. And Jesus does some interpreting of his own. And he goes to Isaiah 29, 13. What's Isaiah 29? You could, you could look at that later. It's fascinating considering that Jesus goes there. Isaiah 29 is Yahweh's judgment against Jerusalem, otherwise known as Ariel. It's a God's prophecy of judgment against Jerusalem, where the Pharisees have just come from. And Jesus demonstrates from Isaiah 29 that God himself is against a people who merely honor him externally with like religious customs and yet have hearts that are far from God. So Jesus is calling, calling these Pharisees out, he says that they're vain worshipers. They're all hung up on human traditions like the washing of the hands, but they're missing the point and they're far from God. You can almost hear a hush fall over the crowd. You know, maybe some people in the back are covering their mouths and saying, oh my goodness, he just went to Isaiah 29 on the Pharisees. As my kids would say, burn. In these opening verses of Mark 7, we see the fundamental difference between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus is concerned about what's on the inside, the heart, the seat of our affections, our loves, our desires, our will. The religious leaders, on the other hand, they're focused on religious activity, what can be seen and observed on the outside. If you're not a follower of Jesus, Mark 7 is a great place to see and understand the difference between Jesus and all other religions. Pharisees, the Pharisees from Jerusalem basically represent religion. Religion's answer to how we cleanse ourselves from the impurities that stain our soul, our guilt, our shame, our sin, is Ritual, custom, religious activities. You take the Eucharist. Uh, you do good things, good works, virtuous living, or separating yourself from the world. That's how we answer the spiritual problem, the, the stain that plagues us. But then Jesus comes along in opposition to all human man-made religion. And he says, that won't cleanse you. Your problem is much worse than you think, as, we, as we've been thinking about in this service and singing about. 
Your problem is much worse than you think. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. The problem is much more than skin deep. It goes to the heart. Do you understand the difference between being someone who's not a sinner because you, you sin, but we sin because we're sinners? Think about that. This is get, Jesus is getting right to the heart of the problem here in Mark 7. And he says that any attempt to deal with our sin problem with good works, it's vain worship. It's worthless. It's empty. You can never do enough. The problem goes much deeper. We should know this by now, and yet we still fall, in, fall into it. Um, we see, you know, Jesus calls these religious leaders hypocrites, and certainly we can think of, even as Jeff led us in a prayer of lament, all the examples of religious hypocrisy that are all around. I mean, it's like a different documentary or, or, or news uh, flash is coming at us every week um, about more hypocrisy in the church. I mean, the more, one of the more recent popular ones is that perfect shiny people about, about the Duggars and the, the Bill Gaither kind of homeschool movement. You can also look kind of at the other end of the spectrum of Hillsong. You can look at the Catholic Church with the abuse scandal. You can look at the Southern Baptist Convention with the abuse scandal. You can look at prominent preachers and leaders in our own town. We can't escape religious hypocrisy. It's everywhere. It's no wonder that people from the outside don't want to come in. They aren't not interested in our message. You know, as, as we think, as we thought about in the introduction, how can we draw people from the outside in? Well, we could kick all the hypocrites out. We, we could be done with hypocrisy, uh, and we wouldn't even have to raise like a bunch of money, right? But I wonder if the problem, the root problem of hypocrisy today is not just out there in all the the news and the documentaries that we see. I wonder if Jesus has anything to say to us today in Mark 7. Do you think that there might be any ways that you, that we, are slipping into worship that becomes mere lip service, that becomes hypocritical? And yet, as we perform religious activity or good deeds, our hearts are, in fact, cold towards the Lord, far from Him. You know, what would be some signs? What would be some signs that you are guilty of lip service to Jesus but have a heart that's far from the Lord? Uh, I mean, it's hard to tell, right? <laughs> because it's a, it's a heart issue. It lies below the surface. But... I think Jesus gives us some ways that we can recognize religious hypocrisy in our own hearts in chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. So I have three signs that we are like the Pharisees that we see in Mark 7, 8 through 23 now. Uh, three signs you might be a religious hypocrite if, number one, your religion is all about you. Your religion is all about you. Your religion is there to serve you, to make you feel better about yourself. I think we see this in uh, verses 8 through 13. You can scan over those verses that I read again. You see that the Pharisees' man-made rules were actually causing them to break God-made rules. Pharisees had drawn a fence around the law to keep them from breaking the law, but now they're more concerned about that fence than they are God's law, and inadvertently or not, they're breaking it, uh, breaking God's law, that is. You know why we get more concerned about the fence around the law than the law itself? It's because we can control the fence. We can move the goalposts, so to speak. We can use the fence to control other people, uh, to, to manage our own problems uh, for our own benefit. Now, this is a way that we make religion all about us and our rules. You know, we can think of many examples of man-made rules um, that lead to the breaking of God's rules throughout the history of the church. I mean, it's like, how much time do you have? We can talk about the Catholic church selling indulgences or worshiping Mary. Baptists using guilt uh, and shame to get people to give more money or to, get, uh, to do missions. We can all too easily 
make religion all about us rather than God. Uh, I think we can do this in much more personal ways. You know, it's a good thing to have a daily devotional time where you're praying and reading God's Word. We encourage you, for example, when you join the church, read through or read through, pray through the, the church directory. It's a good thing to do it. But if having a daily quiet time, if praying for people becomes a means to you feeling better about yourself, feeling more righteous because you are consistent in doing those things, we're starting to, to make the Lord and, his, and our faith about us more than about God. You know, how often we pray or come to church, how much money we give or who we vote for can become fences that we build around God's law and we forget the greatest commandment of how God calls us to, to love him and neighbor you know, I, I mentioned uh, how we use the, the fence of who we vote for. Um, I'm just going to go there. Um, you know, because I've, I've heard it said in the church, I don't know how someone can call themselves a Christian and vote for blank. Or I don't know how someone could ever be a Democrat and a Christian. Or a Republican and a Christian. Hmm. Let's think of that in the context of Mark 7. There are good discussions. We want to think as Christians, how do we exercise our right to vote and engage in politics as Christians, being faithful? Those are good discussions to have. But when you make dogmatic statements like that, like basically you can't do that because I've, I've kind of come up with this rule. It's inconsistent. It sound, that sounds like a pharisaical fence to me. It doesn't sound like humility of like engaging and seeking to understand it sounds like, oh, we got we to gotta build this fence to keep people from breaking this, this law because it's connected to all these issues. Um, and meanwhile, we're judging the conscience of a brother or a sister, making a lot of assumptions. When we talk like that, even privately, to a good friend or a spouse, uh, maybe we're missing the true heart of worship. You know, another sign, so sign number two, that we might be a religious hypocrite. Two, your religion is all about externals. Uh, Jesus tells a short little parable in verse 15. I'm going to read it again. Nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Uh, essentially, we're going to consider that verse in, in these two uh, points, these two signs. But the first one, your religion is all about externals. Jesus tells us what the real danger is, is not what's on the outside. He said the food that goes into your mouth and then into the latrine, literally, never touches the heart. Uh, hand washing, um, focusing on what food is clean or unclean, those things aren't, aren't the point. And yet, even today, those externals are the things that we tend to focus on. Um, you know, I was just reflecting on this last week in a, in a conversation that I was having. I was, I was reflecting on uh, a text thread that I had with someone who thought repentance was worthless for them because no one would believe that that repentance was genuine since they had lived a life of many lies and sin for so long. So literally, this person said to me or asked me the question, what's the point of repenting if no one will believe me? What's the point? I, I asked this person, who are you trying to prove your repentance to? And the person didn't understand what I meant, which I found telling. In other words, would you rather be seen as repentant or be repentant? There's a difference. I wonder if we know the difference. It's so easy to make our religion about what is on the outside, what other people think, our own evaluation of ourselves, all the things we do or don't do, the way we talk or don't talk, this becomes our focus and concern because we can control those things a little better than what's on the inside. Jesus says all the externals can go down the toilet if your heart is far from me. Finally, you might be a religious hypocrite if your religion comes out defiled. Uh, Jesus turns in verse 20 to say, you want to know who you really are? Look at what's coming out of you. 
That's the heart of your true religion, what's coming out of your heart. And then verse 22, 23, Jesus lists off 12 different signs uh, or sins that are all rooted uh, in heart attitudes. I'd encourage you and challenge you to look at verse 22 for yourself. See if any of those resonate with you. I was convicted as I thought about at least one of those on Jesus' list in verse 22, self-indulgence. I wondered to myself in a very pharisaical way when I first read that one, self-indulgence, I was like, okay, how much, how much self-indulgence can I engage in before it defiles me? You know, what's, what's the line here? Because, you know, we all, we all like to indulge ourselves from time to time, treat, treat yourself. But I don't think Jesus here is speaking against like enjoying a, a, a couple episodes of your favorite TV show or enjoying a nice meal or a luxurious vacation. I, don't, I, don't, I actually don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. Uh, as I, I didn't have to think long in my own life of what maybe self-indulgence looks like. Just, this la- just last night, I found myself getting angry and frustrated and annoyed because I wanted to indulge myself by going to bed, reading, maybe working on the sermon. (laughs) Uh, But there were some circumstances and even people that were getting in the way of my plan. And so what came out of me was not love, gentleness, self-control, kindness, but nagging, some anger, and a lack of love. What's coming out of us isn't always very encouraging, is it? Well, we've considered three signs that you might be a religious hypocrite. Your religion is all about you. It's all about externals. And your religion comes out defiled. Consider maybe just one way that you are like the Pharisees today. We could, we could spend all day here, right? Maybe you speak at work and with certain friends differently than you speak with the people here at church. Maybe you come to church, evening service, small group going kind of above and beyond, getting all the extra credit, so to speak. Not so much because you long to worship, but you want to be seen as doing those things. I'm preaching to myself here. Consider the list in verse 22. Consider just one way you might be a closet Pharisee. Consider the ways that we tend to address or avoid addressing the heart issues and instead prefer to deal with behavior modification. uh, Just one more, uh, an aside, speaking of behavior modification, I got to go here for parents in the room. Parents, listen up. I think we can often see the heart of our true worship by how we parent. Are we more strict or gentle with our kids when other people are watching, like when we're parenting in front of others? Do we tend to address our kids' behavior more than their heart? Is our parenting oriented more on what makes our life easier for us? You know, if you said yes, if you're a parent and you said yes to any one of those questions, yeah, 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 um, that would be a good thing to talk to someone about. Like just a friend or your spouse, ask for help, pray that the Lord would help you uh, and give, give you a soft heart that are open to his rebuke that he's giving us right here. We need help. How is, how, like, how is your parenting revealing what's going on in your heart, really? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize what I think Jesus is doing here in Mark 7, 1 through 23 by stealing a metaphor from Jesus. Kids, this is, this is for you in, in case you've, you've lost the thread here. Here's a little metaphor. A little, if, kids, if you came over to my house and I offered you a glass of water, but I knew that I hadn't washed the inside of that glass for years. I had washed the outside. It looked fine. That'd be pretty gross, right? If I offered you that glass of water that hadn't been washed on the inside. And yet, friends, isn't that how we all too often live our lives morally? Our morality is content to be all about externals, making us feel better, 
but in the end, it's gross. It's defiled. So, kids, parents, everyone, Jesus has come to heal us, not just from the outside in, we long for that day, but he's come to heal us from the inside out. He has come to wash the inside of our drinking glass. He has come to turn the inside out. He sees through maybe our sparkly exteriors. Uh, he, He didn't come just to make you look clean, but to really cleanse you. He came to cleanse all those who recognize the filth that's within. How on our own, we are unclean and we need to be cleansed from the inside out. So Jesus was turning religious people's insides out. He was, turning insi- he was turning insiders out with a focus on the heart of true religion. And he did this in part so that the outside might be drawn in, which brings us to our second point. So point number two, outsiders brought in. Uh, look at chapter 7, verse 24. You know, Jesus hasn't come just for religious insiders. Uh, the religious insiders like the Pharisees, they had come to evaluate and critique Jesus' ministry according to their own man-made religions and externals. And so, in Mark 7, 24, Jesus goes on a Gentile missionary trip, essentially. He goes to a Gentile region. He goes to different places. You'll see him moving around through uh, chapter 8, verse 10. And there's three significant incidents that happen on this Gentile journey. We're mainly going to focus on the first one because it's a shocker. It makes the point so well. Look with me at Mark 7, 24 through 30, and listen as I read. He, Jesus, got up and departed from there to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, but he could not escape notice. Instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Gentile, a Cypher-Phoenician woman by birth, and she was asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Verse 27, he said to her, let the children be fed first because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, because of this reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went back to her home. She found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. Mark really builds the tension of this short scene to show that this woman has no right to be talking to a Jewish man, a Jewish teacher like Jesus. Uh, One commentator, a Bible scholar that I read, put it this way. Verse 26 reads like a crescendo of demerit. She's a woman, a Greek Gentile, from the infamous pagans of Syrian Phoenicia. He said, even Levi, the tax collector, must have raised his eyebrows at this woman who has the nerve to beg Jesus to drive the unclean spirit out of her daughter. We got a bold woman here. Got a bold woman. And Jesus seems rude, if we're honest, right? Doesn't he seem rude? It sounds like he calls her a dog. And it's like, he, it's like he's suggesting he doesn't have time for her. You might, you might think, if anybody, if anybody talked to me like that, I'd be like, excuse me? You know, what did you just call me? Uh, who do you think you are? You know, first, Jesus is offending the religious leaders by calling them like hypocrites, the ones that God has come to judge. Uh, he offended his hometown back in chapter 6. We considered that earlier. Now he's going out on this missionary trip and like, oh, it hasn't gotten off to a good start. Jesus, you're not doing a great job of drawing the outside in. Uh, You know, he's calling people dogs. Great evangelistic program, Jesus. Uh, But let's look at it a little more closely. In verse 27, Jesus had said to this woman, let the children be fed first because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But the key to understanding what's going on here is verse 28. Listen to how Jesus responds to this woman or how the woman responds to Jesus, rather. She replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This woman isn't concerned about her position in this interaction. She takes the low position because she's concerned for her daughter. She enters Jesus's little parable by faith. She lets herself be like claimed by it. 
She lets it own her. And her answer in verse 28 reveals that she understands Jesus' mission and identity in a way that no man, no disciple had so far in the Gospel of Mark, in terms of she understands the parable. In this woman, Jesus sees a true Israelite, an outsider who becomes an insider because of her humble faith. She's willing to enter into Jesus' parable, which if we had time to look at it a little more closely, it's maybe not as quite as offensive as it might seem to our modern ears. Um, she enters that parable about dogs and food. She sees herself as unworthy. So she does see herself in one sense as a dog. Like, yeah, I'm not worthy to come to you. But she does because of her faith. You know, speaking of unworthiness, I think a good question to ask ourselves and to even ask others is maybe a question that many of you have heard before. If God were to say to you, say you were to die and you're before the pearly gates and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What gives you the right to come into heaven? How would you answer that question? What gives you the right to enter heaven? This woman in this story hints that the only faithful answer goes something like this. God shouldn't let us into heaven. We are unworthy. But the Son of God is overflowing with generosity. He provides for all who truly see their unworthiness. He will see and accept all those who fall before him, trusting in God and in Christ alone. Isn't that the hard attitude of this Gentile woman, more or less? Do you see this kind of faithful response to Jesus in your own heart? A heart that is humble, that recognizes your own need, that is desperate, that is willing to give up your rights for the sake of coming to Christ? Entitled people will not be in heaven. Entitled people will not be in heaven. Only people who see their great need and recognize that Christ alone can meet that need. So do you see yourself as needy spiritually? Or do you think, I'm a pretty good person? God, I'm probably in God's good graces. I've never done anything that horrible compared to so-and-so or those people. I'm okay. Friends, that was me for a long time. It took a lot of struggles. As our brother Mark shared earlier, I have a similar story. It took a lot of struggles with internal and external defiling sin to reveal to me how needy I was. Uh, and I still struggle today. I still contend to think, oh, God must be pretty happy to have me on his team. But God doesn't have time for people who think that they're good. He came for people like this Gentile woman who humble themselves and don't stand on their merit, but on their need. This Gentile woman's an unlikely candidate to be the Gospel of Mark's first example of truly understanding one of Jesus' parables. And because of her faith, Jesus heals uh, the, the daughter of this unlikely outsider. Uh, but Jesus didn't just come to bring healing to un an unlikely people. He often does it in a very unlikely way. Uh, that brings us to the second interaction, which I'm only going to summarize. We'll just cover it briefly. You know, Jesus uh, is staying among the Gentiles. If you, can, you can look at uh, verse 31 of chapter 7. We see this deaf man. He's deaf, and he has like a serious speech impediment. Not just like a stutter, but the, the word is like he can barely talk. Look at the text and notice how Jesus, the unusual way that Jesus heals this man. Uh, verse 33, Jesus literally puts his fingers in the man's ears. He spits, and then he touches the man's tongue. Um, I'm not exactly sure everything that's going on here, but I think at the very least, it's meant to be a living parable of 
Jesus has got to do it. He's got to be the one who unplugs our ears, and he's doing it out of compassion and love for a man who can't hear. He can't, this man can't hear him speak the words, so it's like he, he's showing his concern. He's drawing near, just as we've seen Jesus do so many times in the Gospel of Mark. He wants a personal interaction with this, with this person that he has compassion on, and it's a living parable for the rest of us that apart from Jesus, like getting in there, getting his hands dirty, opening our ears, and helping us speak, we're unable to hear, to understand, or to speak God's word. Got to move on. The third and final miracle for us today in Mark 8, 1 through 10. Jesus, again, the story will sound familiar. If you were here last week, chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, look over those verses. Jesus has come in compassion to a a weak and a hungry people. This time it's Gentiles, though. When he fed the 5,000, those Israelites, they're actually quite zealous for political purposes. Here, we just have Gentiles who are hungry and needy, and we see that Jesus has more than enough compassion and provision for those outside of Israel also. He loves to provide for them, those who, who come, recognize their need, and eat only what he can provide. You know, Jesus came to preach to Israel as the fulfillment of God's promises to his people, the Jews. But so far in Mark 7 and 8, we see that what makes God's people God's people is not the food that they eat or don't eat. It's not their religious practice. It's not their ethnicity or their background, whether they're Jew or Gentile. That's not what makes God's people God's people. The people who will eat at God's table in the kingdom of God are those who are hungry and come to Jesus to meet their need. And they see Jesus as the only one who can do it. So what about you, friends? Do you see yourself as an outsider with nothing to commend yourself to God? You know, just like we considered in point one, Jesus is concerned on what, on the inside, what's going on in your heart. So what's your heart before God today? What's your heart attitude to him? Do you have the attitude like we sing um, in the 1776 hymn, Rock of Ages? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Or as we sing in, in the great hymn, Come ye sinners, in one version it says, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. Jesus alone soften hearts. Jesus alone can soften hearts. Open ears. Give us tongues to speak and the food that we need. And he also reveals the hardness of our hearts. We consider this in part as Jesus interacted with the Pharisees and the disciples in chapter 7. But this is what we'll consider again in chapter 8, verses 11 through 21, insiders on the outside. In Mark 8, 11, the Pharisees come against Jesus again, this time asking for a sign from heaven. So we're kind of concluding where we began. Jesus refuses to play this game with those who do not come to him in faith. Their demand, the Pharisees' demand for a sign is actually a sign of their unbelief. They come to Jesus on their own terms because they don't get it. These religious leaders that we see in 8.11 are religious insiders. They should be rejoiced. I mean, like, finally, the hope of, the, of, of God's people Israel is here. The Messiah is here. And yet, because of their own hardness of heart, uh, they argue with the Son of God. They make demands of him. They test him. They're insiders who, by their heart towards Jesus, prove themselves to be eternal outsiders. May they not be so of us. You know, the religious leaders demanding a sign is not the only insiders who are on the outside in the, in the rest of our text today. The disciples, they, they haven't made much progress uh, since that boat ride, that first boat ride that we considered in Mark 4 last week. 
They're, consider the boat rides with, uh, with the Jesus and the disciples. Mark 4, during the storm, Jesus had asked his disciples during the storm, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They're terrified. They, they don't have faith. <laughs> they still wonder, who, who is this guy? And then fast forward to Mark 6. After Jesus had walked on the water, Jesus had told them, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. But we learn in Mark 6.52, their hearts are still hard. They still have no faith. Third time is not the charm in the boat for the disciples. In chapter 8 here, their hearts are still too hard to comprehend Christ's identity and his mission. Uh, that's what we see in 8.17, right? Jesus asked them, they're obsessing about their lack of bread, like what's for lunch, we don't have enough. Jesus is like, do you still, do you, or do you, do you have hardened hearts? Like seriously? You know, Jesus is reminding these religious insiders, these people who are literally in the boat with him, they're inside, that he, he just calls them back to like the different feeding miracles he's done. Um, at first, you might be a little bit like, what's the symbolic, you know, what's, what's up with the 12 and the seven in terms of the leftover baskets you see there in the text? I don't think it's so much about the symbolism of the numbers is that Jesus is saying, when you're with me, I'm, I'm sufficient. There's always plenty. Uh, I'm overflowing with generosity. If you've got me in the boat, you need not fear. You do not need to worry about your lack when I'm in the boat. How can we be in the boat but miss Jesus? You might come here faithfully every Sunday, but still miss Jesus because your heart is hard. You know, later, later on, you might have an opportunity to sit and have lunch or discuss this text with your small group. And I think a good, a good question to consider later today or this week would be, how do I struggle to believe that Christ is sufficient? that he's enough. How do I struggle to believe that Christ is enough? And then you can talk about how have I seen Christ to be sufficient in my life? How have I seen Jesus to be more than enough? You know, the easy thing with that second question is to focus on outward external things. You know, we naturally go towards, you know, well, the Lord has provided family, um, food, job, house, this church family, so many things you could point to on the outside. Um, and we should thank God for those things and praise him and thank him regularly. Uh, but Jesus didn't come just to provide those things. He came to heal us from the inside out to meet our greatest need. A much harder discussion to have that we're not as good at having is how has Christ come to meet your greatest need? How has he abundantly provided for you in Christ? It's hard, to, it's hard to go deep. It's hard to go to the heart when we discuss these things, probably in part because our hearts are hard, but also we're not in practice. You know, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so, we're so glad that you're here with us today. Maybe a good question for you to ask walking away, as you've probably you've heard a lot of things, experienced a lot of things today. What would it take for your heart to become soft towards Christ? What would it take for your heart to be soft towards Christ? To not come demanding a sign, judging Jesus, looking at the externals, well, all Christians are hypocrites. So often those are smoke screens to avoid the fact that God is speaking to you today in his word. So where do you struggle to understand, like the disciples, the gospel has something that Christ has done for you? Where do you struggle to understand the gospel as something that Christ has done for you. You know, again, if you don't identify as a follower of Jesus, we would love nothing more than to talk to you after the service about what it would mean for you
to humble yourself. Like the Gentile woman we considered earlier, to humble yourself, to repent and believe, to turn from your sin, to trust in Christ as, as more than enough, as the one who is sufficient to forgive you of your sins and give you the hope of eternal life because of what he accomplished at the cross and because he lives forever for all who put their trust in him. Well, friends, Jesus didn't run the most successful ministry campaign according to human standards. Yeah, I mean, he drew a lot of people in. But Jesus also confounded and confused those who we think, Jesus, you should have been speaking a little bit differently to those people. Those, those people could have pushed your ministry forward. You know, Jesus opened the front door of his ministry wide, reaching out to the most unlikely people. But just as many insiders were falling out the back door because of the hardness of their heart. But praise God that Jesus doesn't give up on people like us who have a hard time understanding and believing. People with hard hearts like us. He, he calls out our hypocrisy. He confronts us in his word, but he's patient. Just like he is with the disciples. They fail time and again. Jesus wasn't just looking for them to give the right answer, uh, to, to do the right thing. Jesus isn't going after our behavior. He wants your heart. He's patient and gentle in drawing in those who recognize their great need, their unworthiness. Now, Jesus' ministry was all about turning the inside out, focusing on the heart of true worship. And as he focused on the heart, he went to the outsiders, drew them in. He revealed himself to the most unlikely people, people who felt their need for him. So in our outreach efforts as a church, we should turn the inside out. We should talk with transparency about our struggles, about our hardness of heart, about our pride, with both believers and unbelievers alike. It's turning the inside out. We should, and then we should hold the gospel out for those we wouldn't even expect to believe, like unlikely people, people that you have a hard time thinking would ever be Christians. And we should pray that God can do, would do what only God can do, which is soften hearts, because that was us. If you're a believer, you were an unlikely candidate for God's grace, but God had mercy and he gave you a soft heart. Christ alone can get to the heart of things. He can turn the inside out to draw the outside in. So let's ask that he would give us soft hearts, continue to soften our hearts towards him by his spirit as we look towards our faith being made sight. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we praise you as the one who is able to do abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. Oh Lord, we, we recognize that you are sufficient for what we need most. And Lord, in the end, you are all that we have. Lord, everything else will fade, but your word, your promises endure forever. Uh, so, Lord, we pray that you would do the very thing that we cannot do for ourselves, that you would soften our hearts, that you would clear away the things that keep us from coming humbly and falling before you. And we thank you for Jesus, who doesn't just help us, but he does this for us. So we depend wholly on you today. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.